Hey there, what's up? Welcome back to another episode of Cart Overflow. I'm Gen Furukawa, and today I want to share my conversation with Raja Namani. So I've admired the work of Raja and who he is as a person for a while, specifically back to 2011, when I had the good fortune of interning for him as he was launching Bucket Feet. Bucket Feet is an early direct-to-consumer footwear brand. We'll definitely get into this in the conversation. But we were both the same age at the time. So I was in between business school years, first year and second year, and I wanted to be in Chicago. And I had the opportunity to work right alongside him and co-founder Aaron Firestein. And it was just the two of them at the time. And I worked at their home, became their office in the morning. It was their inventory. We would ship out orders every day, get it from the third floor, run it down, send it off to the UPS guy. It was really a fun time. And since then, Raja has scaled Bucket Feet as the co-founder and CEO. He was an e-commerce pioneer. He'd opened up various retail outlets in the best parts of the biggest cities, LA, Chicago, Washington, DC, New York. He's raised tens of millions of dollars in venture capital, and he eventually exited to Threadless in 2017. Since then, Raj has gone on to co-found Marketer Hire, which is a network of expert marketers on demand with over a thousand customers in just a couple of years. I've learned a ton from Raja. He's thoughtful, strategic, and he has the experience to lend credence to what he says. So it's, it was a really fun conversation. We go back to what the marketing landscape looked like in 2011. No surprise, very different. Organic Facebook was a thing, paid social, not so much. So we'll get into that, the keys to success in e-commerce, how he approaches retail and direct-to-consumer e-commerce, and also the importance of consistency in storytelling and brand. That's something that was really important to the success of Bucket Feet. I hope you get something out of this conversation like I did. I'd love to hear from you. Please feel free to email me, Gen, that's G-E-N, at prehook.com. And with that said, let's get into it. All right, everyone, welcome back. And today I have a good friend, Raja Namani, who is the co-founder of Marketer Hire. But Raja, I've known you since 2011. I was your intern. I like to say the first intern yes. of Bucket Feet. First team member on our on our team. Yeah. And so this was, just to set the context, I was in the middle of business school, taking a second year. You had just started. I think I think you started in the fall of, or the winter of 2011, right? Yeah. Yeah. We, we launched in February of 2011. Uh, just came yeah. up on 10 years. That's amazing. And I, and so you were like really at the cutting edge of direct this direct to consumer model. And so Bucket Feet were I was super excited to to join as an intern because you were a direct to consumer sneaker brand. I love sneakers and what you were doing was especially cool in terms of like the the story and the mission and and the stage that you were at. And I remember working with you and Aaron who were living together at the time Sometimes you'd be like running up to the third floor attic to fill the shoes, (laughs) print out the UPS sticker, make sure everything was done before the UPS guy came in the afternoon, get it out. That's right. Not Uh, a lot of people know that. (laughs) And I was privileged to like sit down next to you guys. Sometimes it would be like working at, there were a few different pop-up shops. Sometimes it was like collecting email addresses. You know, I remember going to the Apple store by, uh, Goose Island Brewery yeah, trying to there, get emails. There, there was no playbook back then, so we were all just making it up. But it worked. And and so you you sold to Threadless maybe a few years ago. And I, I think the journey is fascinating because I was able to see 
hands-on from the very start when there wasn't even like, you know, this DTC playbook. I don't even think Facebook ads was really the go-to. It was very, yeah, it was very early. It was all, it was all organic on Facebook. I mean, it was a, a time when Facebook likes mattered a lot. So it's really funny if you look at, if you look at the, the DTC brands from back then, you see how many more likes we have on our Facebook page than any other company because it was all about likes and and you could get a ton of organic reach based on whoever kind of followed your page. And I I remember Aaron Fuegosin, who is Firestein, Aaron (laughs) Firestein, who is your Also known as Fuegosin. (laughs) Yeah, Fuegosin. Twitter was his thing. So he was like, he was technically the chief artist officer or chief creative officer. He was our chief artist chief artist. And so he was kind of like going back and forth on Twitter and that seemed like to be the, the, the main channel and way to engage. And so maybe you could just walk us back to 2011, what, what it was like from your perspective as co-founder and CEO leading this brand to now looking back 10 years and and how things have changed so drastically in, in such a short amount of time. Yeah, yeah. So it was an artist design for our brand. Our whole thing was collaborating with artists around the world and and kind of telling their stories of who they were and, and where they were from through shoes. And, and I mean, the whole idea was inspired by a trip around the world I took and, and Aaron and his old hobby of, of drawing on shoes. And, you know, that was at a time where D2C was really new. You think back to, you know, Bonobos had just launched a couple of years prior. Warby had just launched a, a year before. So really, really early. And in those times, you know, Tom's was this big brand. Everyone was kind of leaning into this idea that consumers wanted products that meant more than just a product, that there was kind of a story in, involved. And, and that was driving a lot of the the brand messages back in, in those days, you know, thinking back over the last 10 years, it, it's crazy because, you know, Shopify wasn't a thing 10 years ago. You, you, you know, you mentioned Facebook, um, Instagram, I, I don't think had launched or was really a thing when we, when we first, when we first launched the, the business. And, and so, you know, it was a lot more expensive and a lot harder to build a website and, and to get going in those days, right? Like, you know, and, and even beyond Shopify, this whole ecosystem of plugins and software and products that are off the shelf that can help you kind of set up a store and get going and, and leverage technology in a way that you don't need to hire a bunch of people to do things. None of that really existed, right? For, for e-commerce as we, as we know today. So, you know, on the one hand, many things were harder, I would say, you know, Bonobos had to build a complete, you know, custom architecture for, for, for their e-commerce store where we did the same, like we did the same in many ways. So, and, and, you know, that was kind of hard to do on the flip side. It it was probably, you know, there's always competition, but not competition like there is today. Like, like every day there seems like there's another thousand new brands doing almost the same thing that are kind of popping up. So I'd say the flip side is that, you know, there's a lot more competition today. The, the, you know, again, two, two things that are different is, all those digital channels were very early back then. Now they're much more mature. Like people have playbooks. They know how to use them. There are people that know the channels really well. Like that wasn't really a thing 10 years ago, let alone 20 years ago with like the initial with the initial dot-com boom. The other thing that's really different from kind of a, a scaling perspective is, you know, I think profits have become... It's kind of even silly to say out loud. Profits have become more important than growth at all costs. Mm-hmm. But in those days, you know, venture was was like, what is this thing? E-commerce feels like SaaS, which it isn't, obviously, but it feels like we can get these crazy returns. And it's this whole business model mindset shift, which, you know, really, it's just a new sales channel. 
And so dollars were pouring, pouring in, in the same way that they pour into kind of SaaS. And everyone was like, doesn't matter. You don't ever have to be profitable because eventually those economics are going to turn. Just scale, 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 and then go sell and, or go IPO for, for a huge number. And, and obviously that kind of VC thesis, which fueled a lot of the strategy of entrepreneurs, didn't really pan out, quite frankly, right? And, and I think businesses are being built a lot more smartly today than they were, were 10 years ago in, in kind of the DTC space. I remember... It was probably towards the end of my time there. So maybe the summer of 2011 and, and you were busy doing the fundraising. And I think what was what was one of the more fun experiences as well is you also had this stable of experts and, and people who had been there before who are guiding you. Uh, I remember sitting in on a meeting with Brian Spaley, who was a co-founder of Bonobos and Trunk Club. And I don't know if Andy Dunn was also involved as well, but but you had that extra advantage. Love to learn like what some of those lessons that you had that you gained from them and also some of the mistakes that you made firsthand that you look back and you're like, man, I, I, that was like a costly error, whether in time or money or resources. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the biggest takeaway from, from both all that advice and the advice I kind of give now and, and why I think second time, third time, fourth time entrepreneurs tend to do better is, is because it's not because you don't it's not because you don't ever make mistakes or it's not because you get everything it's you make the right decision every time it's because you just make less mistakes like you're going to continue like whenever you're doing something new that nobody's ever done before which is the whole nature of startups you're going to make mistakes but you make a lot less because you you avoid all of the avoidable mistakes. When you're first trying to start a company, you do not avoid all the avoidable mistakes. You make every single one of them. And, and so I think the benefit sometimes of you know, advisors or, or people you can go to and talk to. And you know, as a founder, you don't necessarily have a lot of people you, you can fully open up to because you kind of are managing all these different constituents. They can, if you haven't gone through it, they have, and they can maybe help you with that. Right, so 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 that's kind of that's kind of the biggest team, biggest thing. You know, if I if I think about mistakes we made, you know, and I think this still happens today. You know, people are so afraid of like what competition is doing, and if they're doing this, then I have to do this. Like every business is completely different, and and so something that I, I continue to try not to like do this, but I find myself doing it from time to time, is not like worry so much about what other people are doing. Like worry about what it is you're doing, understand why you're doing something. And just because somebody else is doing something, even if they seem like, oh man, like that's a direct competitor. They're doing that. I should do that too. Like don't make decisions based on that, right? Every company is different. The team is different. You're capitalized differently. You, you are slightly different position. You must be because you're a different company, just like every person is different. So do what's right for you, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and don't, and don't, you know, be smart, know what other people are doing, but, but, you know, focus on yourself and, and why you're making certain decisions. You know, I, th- I think hiring, h- hiring is, is a big, both kind of mistake at time and lesson learned. I was a first time entrepreneur. I had a finance background. I had never like worked in operations. I, n- I never built anything. So I made a lot of hiring mistakes, right. And, and mm-hmm. not th- those, those were probably the unavoidable mistakes, but, but I made a lot of hiring mistakes. And, and I think a big part of that is you kind of have to go through that trial and error and, and figure out like who's right, not only skill-wise, but culture-wise, et cetera. And, and I think we'll talk about this later, but it's a big reason, you know, I, I was excited about starting Marketer Hire with my, with my co-founders because hiring is really hard. 
Mm-hmm. Like hiring is hard for everyone for all roles, let alone let let alone let alone marketing. Two lessons learned. You, you know, one I think has gotten pretty cliche at this point, but it's worth repeating. It's just focus is critical. Like like don't get don't get distracted by shiny objects. And, and then I think the one that's maybe more more practical is you know, people don't like some of the most unsexy parts of a business are the most important parts of building a business. Like don't underestimate the importance of, of margin and unit economics to success. You could have the greatest product in the world, but if you don't have a great margin, you're, you're kind of like fighting with, with an arm and a leg tied behind your back. You know, it, it's, it's no, it, it is literally not a surprise that some of the biggest D to C success stories have been in glasses, you know, watches, beauty, like personal care, razors, you know, dental care. Recently, Byte had this $1 billion acquisition in Bootstrap. Like these businesses have insane margins. When you have insane margins, you can invest more aggressively into marketing and you can actually do that profitably. And it's really like that simple. Like a lot of times the companies that fail, they just don't ever think about upfront, like what are those unit economics I need to actually build a successful successful business. And, and that's one thing that, that we struggled with. Footwear, that's tough. You know, Allbirds is interesting because they probably don't have as high margins as, as a lot of those other businesses. So they've been able to, you know, there's always exceptions to the rule. Yeah. Allbirds, I was wondering if you had omitted footwear intentionally because I did see Allbirds has recently reached like a $1 billion valuation, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so yeah, you, you know, I, I don't know what their margins are. I'm sure they're good. I'm sure they're very strong. They're not the same as Warby's, doubtfully. Mm-hmm. They're not the same as a lot of these watch brands that have done well. They're not the same as beauty brands. I can almost guarantee you that without, without ever seeing it. So, so it's not just that, obviously, but it takes you a pretty far away. So, so you know, I think it's even, it's even more impressive what they've done in, in a category for their type of footwear product. You know, certain Nike products obviously have massive, massive margins, but for their type of product, it's really impressive what they've done and, and what I can guess is a strong margin business, but not an exceptionally strong business. Yeah. So for footwear specifically, does that have to do with the cost of goods sold are naturally higher or the willingness to pay is lower? Whereas like glasses like Luxottica, you can charge, you know, $300 for the same glasses that cost 50 bucks. Yeah, I think I think it's a little bit of both, right? So you, you know they've set their price point; they're, they're going after their target consumer in a different way than you know Nike might price a pair of shoes at three hundred dollars, right? So a lot of that depends on the brand and positioning and all that on the pricing side. And then there's the cost side, and yeah, like footwear production is very complex; it's hard, it's expensive. There's a lot of things you need to invest in even before you can make one pair of shoes. So so yes, it, it is not. The same as making a pair of glasses. Yeah. Uh, Allbirds is an interesting example because I've, I've been to their store. I've never bought a pair. Like it, I was kind of curious about the, the product itself. And, and in New York and Soho, there's a store. And I know you opened a store. I was really proud to see it in Bucktown. And it reminded me of this quote from Webb Smith that basically all DTC brands will eventually move towards retail or wholesale and vice versa. And so there's maybe some, some retail mix in the middle of DTC and, and uh, in person. And so I was wondering if you could explain that a little bit and like the strategic decision-making behind that, and then also how you assess whether it's a success or not, as in, is it there just to 
build a brand like say Casper where people try it on or, or uh, Bonobo's try on shop. You can't walk out with any product, but you just try it on, you experience it and it's a way to build a brand affinity. Or is it more like that's an acquisition channel and it's, and you're measuring things with the same metrics? Yeah, I think I think Webb's kind of spot on there, you know, and, and I think that's what a big learning was of 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 D to C or e-com over the last ten years, which is it is not some fundamentally innovative, different business model, right? It is a different sales channel. In the same way, having stores as a sales channel. In the same way, selling on Amazon is a sales channel. In, in the same way that selling at Nordstrom is, is, is a sales channel. There are certain things that are unique to it that maybe allow you to scale in a different way, get get eyeballs in a different way that is obviously different from physical retail. But but yeah, I totally agree with the fact that you know if you're going to become a big brand, you kind of need to be everywhere your consumers are, both online and and in person. And I don't think that's going to change you know, any, anytime soon for, for, for most businesses that aren't maybe named Amazon. So, so for, you know, to unpacking that question a little bit, the answer is it kind of depends, right? So, so, you know, obviously there are many brands out there where retail is their primary sales channel. They are trying to have, have both acquire customers in person and generate profits ultimately on those in-person sales. And then even for some of those businesses, if you unpack it a little further, you know, their store in Soho in New York, even though they have a massive retail strategy, that store specifically is probably not meant to ever be profitable, right? Just because the, the, the real estate is too expensive, right? The rent is, is too expensive. I mean, those economics don't work, but you have a lot of these big brands with these landmark properties, obviously, which is much more about marketing and brand presence which supports the rest of the business than it is anything else. And then I think in D2C, a lot of it was experimentation. So for us, you know, again, this is, it was, I'm glad we did it. I would say mixed results. And, and ultimately, you know, Threadless is a fully online business and chose to close any remaining locations when, when you know, we became part of, part of Threadless. But for us, we saw others doing it. We're like, okay, this is interesting. Um, again, it was another one of those like hot things and way to invest those venture dollars to try to understand it. And in, in, you know, a lot of it's just testing, right? Just like you're testing a Facebook as an acquisition channel, you're testing retail as an acquisition strategy. So it's why pop-ups became so popular because you could like test it with a bit less financial risk, short-term leases, month to month, whatever it was. So for us, you know, we really thought about it from a branding and marketing perspective. What was interesting though, is our conversion and I think this is the same for most companies. Our conversion was like through this roof. So some of those mm. stores were operating at pretty close to, to break even, if not like profitable over different periods of time because our conversion was through the roof. And what we found was, this was always a challenge with our product, was it was hard to, to really get people to understand the product for us online versus actually holding yeah. it in their hands and seeing the design, seeing how they looked like. Because... I mean, if you can go to you can go to that site still right now, and and pretty crazy designs, right? Like our whole value prop was these are unique shoes. These are the most unique shoes in the world. So, like, don't wear these because you're trying to like <laughs> you're trying not to stand out, right? So, so that in person sale was much more visceral for us. Mm -hmm. You know, in terms of measurement, again, it comes down to like what are your goals and what is your strategy. If, if this is to drive revenue and to drive profit, you know, you need to look at okay, like. How many units am I moving? Like, what are my costs to operate this store? You know, what, what's my kind of like rent factor? And, and, and 
retail sales is much more, you know, there's something somebody much smarter than me told me. I think somebody said this about Starbucks, right? They're really a real estate company. They're not a, they're not a coffee company or a retail yeah, company. McDonald's. Like, and that's really what it is. Like they're really good at squeezing like every dollar out of and finding the best locations to sell a cup of coffee. And, and so like, if those are your goals, you need to think with that mindset. If your goal is really marketing, you, you know, you need to be able to understand, okay, how much, you know, how do I tie what's happening in that store to what's happening online? I, I don't know if this is true, but I heard years ago, you, you know, Warby was very good at and what led to a lot of their aggressive retail expansion is they're very good at understanding what online lift they got mm. from the cities where they had retail locations and they helped it, and, and their online sales help dictate then back to where do I want to open additional retail locations? So like to be able to get that compound value or, you know, flywheel effect, you know, what was one of the, what, 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 those were the things that they were kind of trying to measure and, and figure out. Yeah. <clears throat> trying to think how they might measure it. And it's maybe like a location-based brand impressions, right? Like Warby Parker, you know, in, in Austin or, or um, San Francisco or LA. So you mentioned this story. And I, and I think that's one of the really fun things about Bucket Feet is when I joined, there was that inspiration from Tom's, I think, where I think 10% of the profits went to nonprofits. And I, I remember there was like a, a kid's art program, and then there were some other local programs. And then part of it was the artist design element. And then it was it was just kind of like the, the style, the personality that comes through it. And then I think from from a consumer perspective down the years, it moved towards the, the artist part of it. And so can you just walk me through like the brand evolution, the story, because, you know, you mentioned even in 2011 story was important, but the story changes. I don't think your you and Aaron's story changed, but the, the message, the brand positioning did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that was the lesson learned and, and, you know, that was a big lesson learned and and it goes back to what I talked about before, kind of, you know, worrying about what other people are doing and and maybe trying to overcomplicate something that's, that's really simple. You, You know, I still see this with brands today. It's hard to understand what their single value proposition is when you go to their website. And like, if the best piece of like branding advice I can give is you should be really, really clear. And there should be no confusion as to like what you do and why I should care the second I'm on your, on your site for any company really. Right. Like, like it really comes out as simple as that. And for some reason, like we got that way wrong (laughs) early on and, and companies continue to get that like incredibly wrong all the time. And and it's really simple. And then maybe it's because it's, you know, it's a bit harder to be concise and clear than it is to you know be verbose and and with that, anything with with creative with with writing with with messaging whatever so originally you know we you know we were Aaron and I met literally volunteering in in the slums of you know Argentina and we wanted to be really true to that story and so I think we by wanting to be like super true to that original story our our message became overly complex and verbose. And a lot of feedback we got in probably that first year was like, I don't really like understand like what, like, like what is the important piece here, right? Is it the designs? Is it the shoes? Is it the artists? Is it like these groups you're supporting? And that's like the last place you want to be <laughs> as a brand. Like people don't know, like they don't know, like what, what is that? What, what, what is that? What is that thing? And, and so it evolved to a much better place where, you know, it was really about the artists. It was really about the artists that were each like designing these shoes. They're all, and the fact that it was a different artist for a different shoe meant the, all these shoes were very unique. 
So if, you know, all birds stands for, you know, comfort, if, if Nike stands for, you know, everybody's an athlete, you, you know, we stood for being unique, mm-hmm. right. And, and being unique through, you know, buying these artist design shoes. And, and so it evolved into a much better place that again, still was true to what we were doing, but in a much less, I hope, confusing way. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it is very clear to me. And I think when you just say like being unique, I, I think you see the shoes, you, you see the website and uh, you try it on and you kind of feel unique too. I, I remember they were called the bamboos. Yeah. Pink and, pink and blue bamboos. Pink I, I and blue bamboos. Yeah. Those were dope. So yeah, I'd love to talk about the team and what you're doing with Market or Hire. There was a really good article. I'm pretty sure you saw it. Packy McCormick, right? Like the one-man army. And basically, it's, it's you compare DTC in 2011 versus DTC now. And kind of the premise of the article is you can do so much as an e-commerce brand because you're able to pick and choose these mercenary skill sets. And I think that's exactly where you come in. When you were talking, I remember, oh man, like... They weren't using Shopify. They were using Bucket Feet was using Magento and there were yeah. developers and it was terrible. Like these, <laughs> these crazy hours because they were, you know, I think they were overseas in India. And so it was like, man, even just small changes were not easy at all. And I can attest that from watching you. But now things are different. You, you basically have a plug and play website with Shopify and then you're getting these skill sets. And that's exactly what you're doing. And can you describe where, where the transition came from, the problems that you experienced? with bucket feet hiring to building out market or hire to help other brands do the good hiring. Yeah, for, for sure. So, so, you you know, I I can't take too much credit. My, my, my co-founder, Chris is a lifetime marketer and and he approached me in kind of the middle of 2018 with this concept, something that he's been thinking about forever. And and the only thing that I could add to that was, you know, I was all in right away because it resonated with me a lot because I, I, I kind of come at this, what we're building now from our customer point of view. I was literally the target customer mm. that like that went through all the pain that we want to solve for. Whereas Chris really approaches this from the marketer's point of view. You know, he's, he's been a marketer, he's at agencies, he's, he's had other companies within the digital marketing space all the time. And, and so he knows all about kind of the pain points and opportunity on that side. And, and so it's this perfect matching. And, and again, I, I want to mention, because this is kind of random, we, we were trying to figure out like how we originally connected. You were actually the person, I don't know if you remember this, in 2011, actually introduced Chris to me, which is when I first oh, really? met, which is when I first met Chris, Chris Toy, who's my co-founder at Marketer Hire. It was through an introduction by you when you were working with us. And I don't know how you connected with Chris. And, and if you remember, Chris became our first outsourced CMO, basically. Um, oh. And that's when I started my first like working relationship with, with Chris. And, and so we, we go, we all go way back. So this is, this is kind of fun and kind of a homecoming, but yeah. So, so, you, you know, like today co- until market or hire, you know, companies kind of have three options for hiring. They can look for somebody themselves, themselves, which takes a long time, right? Again, like hiring even one person for one thing is really hard. takes a long time to, to get that right. But if you can't do the job yourself, then it's even harder to figure out if that person's any good and to make the right hire. It's why I like mm-hmm. startups hire and fire so many people because it's really hard to hire and, and most people can't do the job that they're, they're hiring for considering marketing is changing like more than any other industry. Marketing has probably changed more than in any industry on planet Earth in the last 20 years. And it continues to change at a rapid pace. 
like exhibit A, B, and C is Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, right? Like all this stuff like didn't even exist. So <clears throat> hiring is hard and, and it's not a great kind of process experience. It's very easy to get it wrong. You know, the second option is call it, you, so this is why there's been this proliferation of digital marketing agencies. Problem with agencies are, if you know agency business model, is they have massive, massive markups on their pricing, right? They, they try to hire and pay as, <laughs> you know, like as little as they can. And then they, particularly for performance marketing, they charge you on a percentage of ad spend. Mm -hmm. So if you 10X ad spend, your fees 10X, and the amount of work does not come close to 10Xing. The amount of work probably actually stays the same. It's, totally probably, actually hard, yeah. it's probably actually harder initially. It's also misaligned. Because if you hire a Facebook agency, they will never, ever, ever tell you to get off Facebook or to do something else or try something else because that's dollars out of their pocket. So they're super incentivized to keep you spending money and the thing that they're doing for you, that the thing that they want you to do, whether or not it's right for your business or not. And then the third option is recruiting firms. Recruiting firms are expensive. You're going to pay like these massive fees to work with a recruiting firm. It also takes a long time. And those recruiters also don't know how to do the job, right? They just have a playbook for, for, for kind of how to hire. And then the more recent fourth option has been the Upwork survivors of the world. But you kind of pay, you, you get what you pay for. You know, if, if you want to pay somebody $10 an hour to do a thing, you're going to get a $10, $10 an hour of value. These are not like talented marketers on, on these platforms that come from the best companies in the world. These are random people in random countries typically. And you, kind of get, and you kind of get what you pay for. And they don't really solve the problem of finding somebody for you. You're on that site. You're browsing through thousands of profiles. You don't know what's what. Maybe you'll find a diamond in the rough, but probably not. So like we're, we're kind of there to solve all of that. Make hiring really easy. We vet everyone that is accepted on our platform. You pay for what you need. So you get the right amount of the right marketer right now. And so you can build an entire team off our platform. Like you said, you know, and, and using the words you mentioned from, from, from Packy, you know, you can build an entire team now for the exactly amount of things you need, which can go up and down as you need it by role for the price of one or two full-time hires. That may or may not, you know, be be experts and and may or may not be experts forever because it's just hard to keep up with the pace of change of marketing and, and so we've created this way to make sure you get quality make it really easy make it really fast and make it really affordable and it sounds kind of too good to be true but like our, our product works that way you, you know we have we have customers from local restaurants to like netflix that use marketer hire in the exact same way for the exact same thing Nobody gets any special treatment. I don't think there's an agency in the world that has, you know, acquired more than a thousand customers in less than two years. I think we've just built a better mousetrap. And I think, you know, we're super excited because we can help customers achieve their goals. What we're really selling is growth, right? Last 10 years is about making it easy to start a company. Nobody has made it really easier to then get people to come to your store. We make yeah. it easier for people to come to your store, right? That's really what we're selling. We're selling peace of mind and trust to get to, to know that you have the best people helping you get people to your store, whether you're a B2B tech company or you're you know, a D2C brand, e-commerce, whatever. And on the other side of our marketplace, we help our marketers earn tons of extra income. It either becomes their primary income or it becomes a secondary income that takes their salary up. 20, 30% a year. So, so we feel really good about like that two-sided problem we're solving for. And, and I think the proof has kind of been in the pudding. 
That's really impressive. Congrats. I had no idea that you had a thousand customers in two years. I mean, that, that is certainly, a, I suppose, what you'd call product market fit. So your bird's eye view is really unique where you're seeing kind of like the, the behind the scenes of what's working. Of course, you don't need to divulge anything. But what I am curious to know is, are there any like standard playbooks or is there a, a an order of operations in terms of channel or skill set that some of the more successful brands have? And, you know, like one other way to frame the question is like, what's the first skill set to hire for? And it's something that I've, I've thought about and, and looked at. And I might, I might go with like a copywriter, kind of like a generalist, but with a skill set in copywriting. But you, you know best, and I'd love to know what you've seen and what you think. Yeah, yeah. So, so and, and the funny thing I always caveat with is I'm, I'm not a marketer myself, right? So, so, so this is so, so building that marketing team is, is it's been amazing for us even to, to kind of leverage, you know, Chris and, and the talent that we have on the team to help think through some of those things. So, for me, the number one thing, regardless of company, is right, you need to kind of have a clear vision. Right. So if it's a startup that starts with the founder, if it's if it's a bigger company, it starts with it's kind of an executive. And you have to have respect for the people doing the jobs. Like you have to respect that each of these things is a very hard thing that takes a very talented person to do at a very high level. I think the biggest mistake companies, especially startups, make is they assume I can do that thing myself. Cause, cause like marketing kind of feels easier than engineering. Right. And, and in mm. certain ways, right. Everyone can kind of wrap their head around marketing. Everyone, everyone can like try to manage social media. Like not everyone can just go like write some code and build a website. So there's this weird dissonance there where marketing doesn't get the respect it deserves. So you need to respect these are like hard things, but there are talented people that can do those hard things. But I think it starts with vision. And, and then I, th I think, yeah, you know, number two, like you can't just start trying stuff. Like you have to have some semblance of, of a strategy. Like this is the big, you know, this is the end thing I'm trying to accomplish, kind of work backward from there. You know, what is my hypotheses around like what might be able to get me to that goal? And how am I going to set up a testing framework to kind of go achieve that? That can be like a marketing manager, a growth marketer, you know, a CMO, like different types of people. Again, depending on the type of company you are to kind of like set up those things. And then, you know, bringing in experts, channel experts to then go attack those, those various things that you're trying to accomplish. And just really importantly, understanding if you're getting, you know, true positives and true negatives or false positives and false negatives with, I did this, this happened. What does that tell me? And then, and then kind of iterating and learning from mm -hmm. there. But, but I think like, it's obviously, there's no way to, there's not, not one, there's not, there's a thousand ways to crack an egg. There's no silver bullet. Lots of companies have had success doing things in, in very different ways. I think the one unifying factor for the most successful companies is clarity of thought and vision. Like, this is what I'm trying to accomplish, right? It goes back to like, what, do I, what am I trying to do? I don't care what everyone else is trying to do. What am I trying to do? And, and then a clear kind of plan of how I can try to accomplish that goal, understanding what the limitations of that plan are, what the opportunities, strengths, weaknesses. And then, you know, kind of pragmatically attacking that plan, you know, paid a lot of companies, you know, Airbnb and booking.com is, is really interesting. You know, Airbnb has relied heavily on organic, right? Airbnb, which typically you would think makes you a much more profitable business. 
Airbnb is like hyper unprofitable, right? <laughs> Bookings.com has relied like almost entirely on paid acquisition and they're incredibly profitable mm-hmm. business, right? So, so, so it is not just enough to have that person that helps you set the plan. And now you think, okay, I can like just do whatever and it's going to kind of work. You need to have a great plan and then great execution. And you can't have one or the other. I came across a, a quote. I think Brian Chesky was on some show recently and he said, yeah, the pandemic hit them hard, as you might imagine. They basically, they made national news by cutting back on their spend, their team and their marketing. And he said, basically, they, they cut their marketing by like 95%, but they didn't really lose business. They didn't lose traffic because there was so much from built up organic and brand awareness that it's an interesting thought experiment for Airbnb or any company really. Like, what if you spend some a lot allocated amount of time or money, turn off all marketing spend? Like, how would that impact things? And then the flip side of that, how are those things that spend actually driving you know growth or moving? Yeah, the and 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 obviously, like I think Airbnb is an incredible company, and, and Brian seems like somebody I don't know, but seems like an incredible you know founder and, and CEO, and a big part of like that working is them being able to understand exactly what happened. And, and, and that's another thing like people get wrong or you know, amateurs playing the game of marketing get wrong is maybe something happens. And again, it, it's, a, it's a false positive, mm-hmm. right? Like knowing exact, being able to then like unpack that and figure out exactly why that happened. And Airbnb, I'm sure, has the kind of sophistication to be able to kind of figure out those things. But if you don't, it's challenging. But you know, ultimately like, you want a multifaceted kind of multi-channel approach, right? Like we do not believe for our own business and only paid or, or only organic or only like this or that or whatever. And, you know, we also for, for our own business, you know, think about, you know, what is our hypothesis around like, you know, who our customer is, how we can get to that customer, how we can attract them. You know, those customers are at different kind of life cycle stages in terms of like ready to buy, not ready to buy, blah, blah, blah. And how do we test these things? But how do we test in a way that like we know it's working or not working Mm -hmm. and everything's not going to work, but you got to know. I think where people start to waste a lot of money and hurt growth is they just don't know. They're just like doing stuff and they have no idea like whether it's working or not. Or they think it's working, it's not working. They think it didn't work but they actually didn't do it properly and it, <laughs> it would work. And, and that's why you need experts. That's why you need like, you, you want to take the variable of, is this thing working for my company or not? You, you don't want to like worry about, well, was the person good enough that did that thing, right? Like, like and that's a big part of our company. We want to take the whole variable out of, is my team good enough? Is the person executing good enough? We don't want it to be about that. So yeah. then you can think about, is it product, your website, or, or whatever else? And of course, the added benefit of termination costs or fees of full-time, very different than freelance contractors. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, I mean, our, yeah. our service is free to use, right? Like, we, 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 you can scale up and down however you want. You can cancel any time. No well, not free contract. to use, per se. Yeah. So, so free to get matched to a marketer. I mean, you pay if you hire somebody. I mean, you pay them for what you hire them for and how long you work with them and, and not, a, not a penny more. So, so yes, that, that low risk, low financial risk. And I always tell people this, like you have not, literally nothing to lose to try. So you might as well try because it could change your business, right? Like, and, and if you think about, we go back to D to C specifically with Shopify and all these tools, 
engineering is not like where most D2C brands win, right? Some do, like some actually create some sort of unique experience that, that is an that, that enterprise value generator, but most don't. Like most are winning on marketing. And, and, and so, you know, I would argue that investing in marketing and marketers is far more important than anything else for, mm-hmm. for a consumer brand. Yeah. Outside so, of product, of course. <laughs> yeah. Which really, you know, there's a growth element and then there's a product itself because the rest, I mean, that's, that's really the secret ingredient, I think, of the brands. But what I'd like to ask you is, you know, my last question where there might be opportunities as in like, you know, arbitrage, where, where the market still might be mispriced. So, you know, that's an open-ended question in terms of maybe it's a channel, you know, like TikTok, or maybe it's a, a niche where things haven't been updated or there's, you know, a DDC, D2C opportunity. But I'd love to know like one opportunity that you're really excited about now for brands. Yeah, it's a, it's a great, it's a great question. I think and I think if I if I reframe that in a different way, you know, whenever stuff is new, there's high risk, high reward, right? All channels can work depending on the company, the product, the strategy, et cetera. There's not like like Facebook still works. It's pretty mature at this point. <laughs> still got to spend yeah. on Facebook, and and it might be your best channel, quite frankly, depending on on the business you're in. So so it doesn't need to be new for the highest return and highest opportunity. But but like anything else, it's high risk, high reward. When things are new, high risk, high reward. So so one of the things that we've been getting asked a lot about recently, and and I personally don't even know. We have marketers that are having some success here is uh, Clubhouse, right? So, so people are now, it's very early days, right? So, so people are already starting to kind of unpack water and, and they're probably going to go in the direction of some sort of ad revenue model at some point, right? And so it's in those like really early, early organic days where I think like the really creative marketers, some of the marketers on our platform, we've been talking about a lot in our community, you know, what are the big opportunities right now when, when like nobody else is taking advantage of it? Because like it's super hot, right? Like everyone on Twitter is talking about it and then going to Clubhouse to listen to this thing. They, they've kind of become like these public podcasts. Obviously, that's become a hot place to, to invest capital. So, so that, that's one that's really interesting. And then I had a call with somebody senior at LinkedIn the other day. And, you know, one thing he said to me that was really interesting, they consider themselves where face from there in terms of the marketing opportunity and, and, and kind of the evolution of the platform, they consider themselves like where Facebook was like 10 years ago. So again, mm-hmm. like 10 years ago on Facebook, you could do crazy things for like no money at all. If you just knew what you were doing and you knew how to leverage the platform. And so I think there's, you know, while people, I think a lot of people view LinkedIn as mature, it was really interesting for me to hear that internally they view themselves as like really immature, actually. And, and whenever that's the case, I think there's there's opportunity if if you if you can be creative. Definitely for for you, for marketer hire or other B2B companies, it would be interesting to see what a B2C play might look like on LinkedIn. I just from seeing the back end a little bit in terms of like ads, seems like a little bit pricey, you know, but but if that's where attention is, and I've signed up to Clubhouse, I haven't quite quite understood it yet. It seems a little bit hit or miss in terms of you know, I don't I don't know how value. I don't I don't know how people have so much time to, yeah. to listen in on the room, <laughs> but we're we're dads, I guess. So maybe yeah, right, exactly. Right, maybe that's different. 
Uh, Raja, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing all your thoughts and experiences. This was really fun and and uh, congrats again on all the success. What's the best way to find you online? Yeah, so me personally, I, I'm not personally not super active on social, probably LinkedIn. So Raja Namani and then Marketer Hire is marketerhire.com. And yeah, it's, it's free to try. So try it. Yeah. And I've sent one client there, I actually don't know how it worked out yet, but uh, I, I do know and working with some of the team, it's a fantastic offering and service and high quality freelancers. So uh, awesome. I highly really appreciate it as that. well. Thank yeah. you. Thanks, Roger. Cool, man. Thanks so much. Yep. Bye. And that's the episode for today. Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. We love you for it. If you found anything valuable at all or want to share your feedback, please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also just drop us a line, hello at cartoverflow.com. We'd love to hear your feedback or suggestions so we can cover it in a future episode. All right, see you next time.